0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your NBN host, Lavinia Stan, a professor of political science at the San Francis Xavier University in Antigonish, Canada. I'm talking today with my dear colleague, Dr. David Young, a professor in the Faculty of Education, at the same university, St. Francis Xavier, and chair of the Department of Curriculum and Leadership. Equally important is the fact that David is currently a fellow of the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government at FX, which has facilitated this interview. Named for its champion, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and housed in a state of the art uh, complex, the Institute offers uh, an in- undergraduate uh, public policy program, the coordinator of which I was in ni- 2019, 2020, and brings together public policy scholars from a variety of fields. Welcome to the New Books Network, David.
1: Thank you, Labinia. Pleasure to be here today.
0: Thank you very much for accepting this interview, um, where we will focus on your recent book entitled, uh, Policy Matters, Perspectives, Procedures and Processes, which was published with Emerald Publishing last year. Now, before we turn to the book, Um, Could you tell our listeners a bit about your academic trajectory?
1: Certainly, Lavinia. So uh, I really don't like talking about myself, but uh, I'll do my best to give my narrative, if you will. So I was born in a a rural location in Quebec, Canada, a small town called New Carlisle. Its claim to fame is it is a birthplace and hometown of rene Levesque. The former premier of Quebec. So I spent my uh, formative years in New Carlisle and I often get asked, because we're born in Quebec, you must be francophone. And the answer is actually no, I am anglophone. New Carlisle is a loyalist settlement, so primarily English in a very French part of the province. I attended a Protestant school at that time. Uh, since that time, Quebec's moved towards linguistic school board, so English and French, when I finished my schooling, was Catholic or Protestant. Again, I attended a Protestant school in Quebec and uh, enjoyed my time there immensely. At the end of grade 11, my last year in high school in Quebec, I had to decide where to go to university. Big decision, certainly, and I had a lot of options available. Uh, for me, in the end, I chose the University of New Brunswick. And the reason was twofold, really number one geographically it was close to new carlisle about five hours away approximately and number two was in quebec to attend university you first must attend sejap which is a junior college basically i didn't want to attend sejap to be honest so i foregone that and went to UNB and pursued my studies there i did a bachelor of arts degree in sociology first and uh, really enjoyed my time at unb Uh, enjoyed the campus, the school, and the city of Fredericton. So it was a good experience overall, very positive. And my plan was then upon finishing the BA to go to law school. And they often say, of course, the best laid plans. And uh, in my case, it didn't follow through, but uh, I pursued a different path, which again was, I think, very advantageous for me. So upon finishing my BA degree, I pursued an MA in political science at Acadia University in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. And I had an excellent supervisor there, Dr. Ian Stort. His big research area was political culture. And I did a study on Quebec nationalism, both the federalist side and the separatist side of nationalism. And again, it was uh, very enlightening, certainly. And I really enjoyed my time at Acadia. It was only a one year program, but my time in Nova Scotia was noteworthy. And in the end, of course, I moved back to Nova Scotia, different locale, but it all kind of comes full circle, really, in that sense. So I enjoyed my time there, one year degree, like I say. And when that was over, I went back to UNB and pursued a Bachelor of Education degree. And the real reason why I pursued a BED was. During my time at Acadia, I was a teaching assistant for a first-year class in political science, and I really found I enjoyed being in the classroom. I loved imparting wisdom. I loved spending time with students, so I kind of put law school on the back burner and went back to UNB, like I say, and pursued my BED. That was a two-year degree program. I pursued the BED in secondary education. My teachables were social studies, so geography, history, poli-sci, sociology, the gamut, basically. And upon completion of my BED, I spent some time in schools working as a classroom teacher. I primarily taught grade 10 in both Quebec and New Brunswick, and again, I really enjoyed my time in the classroom, I loved being a classroom teacher, but I always had that sort of bug to go back to school and pursue graduate studies in education. So uh, after a few years teaching in the classroom, I went back to UMB yet again for another degree, this time a Master of Education, Administration and Policy. And I pursued studies in the area of school law primarily. That was my major focus in my MED work. And my thesis, again, building on my Quebec background, explored denominational and linguistic school boards in Quebec and the transition from one to the other. And the big surprise for me was I expected or anticipated again there'd be a lot of turmoil around linguistic boards coming into being. What I found conversely was no, There was little turmoil, little controversy. The transition was very smooth. And uh, still to this day, of course, in 2024, Quebec has linguistic boards, and they're working, I think, relatively well. So that was my MED work. And again, I had a great advisor there, Dr. Lawrence Bazot. His specialty was education law, education policy, and uh, he was a tremendous mentor, really instilled within me the you know that pursuit of higher knowledge again it was just really infectious to be honest so i really enjoyed my time at umb again three degrees there so overall a, a very positive experience so after my med was completed i went back to the public system again to teach and i worked as a teacher again then i spent 3 years as well as a school board administrator I worked primarily in the area of special education, what we call now in 2024, inclusive education. Back then, it was more called special education, but uh, same vernacular, basically. So I spent some time there working and, again, uh, really enjoyed my time being back as a school board administrator. But there was still that bug to go back and uh, pursue yet one more degree. So I made the conscious choice to resign my teaching position permanently and pursue my PhD. I did that at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. And again, I worked in the area of administration and policy primarily, with a specific focus on education law. And I chose Western for a number of reasons. Uh, Number one, at Western, the Faculty of Ed, there was what I would say is a leading scholar in the area of education law, Dr. Greg Dickinson. He was my doctoral supervisor and, again, just a tremendous mentor. And to this day, he is still a mentor and a friend. So we have a really great bond and uh, a lot of many commonalities, shared interests, obviously. So he was, again, in every way, shape and form, the epitome of a mentor, again, like I say. So I spent uh, four years at Western doing my Ph.D. work, and I changed gears from the Quebec side of things towards negligence law for my PhD. So I basically examined phys ed teachers and the reaction to a no-fault tort scheme to, lit- to uh, litigate, uh, basically, lawsuits in education. What I found was, despite the pros of a no-fault system, most teachers, because they know what a tort scheme is like, they preferred that system as opposed to a no-fault scheme. So that was my doctoral work. And for that that work, I actually won a national award. It's called the Canadian Association for the Practical Study of Law and Education, CAPSUL is the acronym, the CAPSUL Fellowship. So that was a fairly significant uh, award. And uh, I was very pleased to receive it, obviously. And uh, again, it was kind of a testament to the work I had done in my PhD studies, So after I finished the PhD, I spent a year at Western as a limited term instructor and uh, taught a number of courses, school administration, uh, uh, contemporary issues, uh, educational policy. So again, right across the gamut basically. And then one of my professors at Western who had taught previously at St. Effects, he showed me a job posting for a job at St. Effects University in the Faculty of Education and he said uh, you should apply for this job. You'd be a natural fit and uh, so lo and behold I applied for the job. That was back in 2008. I was the successful candidate and I accepted the position and I've been here at St. Effects uh, ever since and uh, have enjoyed the uh, experience here from day one. And Moving back to Nova Scotia, again, was a lot of uh, a draw for me because, again, number one, I had studied in the Maritimes in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia both, plus my wife was from Nova Scotia originally, so for her, that was uh, certainly a draw as well. So we've been back here, like I say, since 2008, and we really love the university, and we love Annie Ganish, and it's a great place to raise a family and reside and during my time here at St. FX, I moved from assistant professor to associate to full. So I've uh, gone through the various ranks in the academy. I've also taken on here at St. Effects a number of uh, leadership roles because of my background working in administration and policy. I have been the chair of the doctoral program here at St. FX, and that's a joint program between here and Acadia University and Mount St. Vincent in Halifax. It's a kind of a unique program. It combines or pools together the resources of the three schools and uh, works in tandem. So I've chaired that program. I've also chaired the Department of Curriculum and Leadership, like you mentioned, Lavinia. And that department is primarily our MED department, Master of Education department. In the Faculty of Ed, we have two departments. One is Teacher Ed, that is the BED program. Curriculum and Leadership is the master's program and I chaired that program for two terms. I'm no longer the chair of the program now, however. Uh, When I went on sabbatical, I finished off my second term as chair, although I will say after sabbatical, I came back and did one more year as chair post-sabbatical. I am now no longer chair, however, I resigned that last June, so June 2023. Uh, I'm currently the director of the Frank McKenna Center for Leadership here on campus that is named in honor of frank mckenna the former premier of new brunswick and a saint effects grad by the way and a tremendous benefactor of this university Uh, the leadership center basically provides uh, leadership programming for undergrad students here at saint effects we run a number of unique programs like the zavarian leaders program that is again uh, training for undergrads who aspire towards leadership roles We also offer a series of grants to pursue leadership projects. So it is a very interesting job. It's a rewarding job, a very unique job as well, I would say. And uh, because of that job, I do a little less teaching right now, but uh, there's a trade-off, obviously. But again, I enjoy that role tremendously. But I still do uh, keep myself involved in the teaching avenue. I teach a lot of different courses, all in the area of education, So the courses I teach most routinely are education law. That's my main go-to, obviously. I also teach educational research, educational policy. I used to teach special education at one time, not so much anymore. I teach the doctoral seminar occasionally as well for our PhD program. At the BED level, I primarily teach only one course now. It's a course called C-I-P-E. And that stands for Contemporary Issues in Public Education. It is a second year required BED course. And it's a kind of a hodgepodge course. It covers a lot of different things like education law, philosophy, history. So again, a hodgepodge, but it is a lot of valuable information we cover. And like I say, required course for all second year students in the Bachelor of Education program and a couple more things i mentioned very quickly in passing here as well as you mentioned earlier i'm also a fellow of the mulrooney institute which again is another uh, tremendous opportunity very unique and most recently i've been the chief negotiator for the union the here at saint effects for our contract negotiations which again was a new thing for me and in the end i would say incredibly rewarding uh very labor intensive but again in the end We got, I think, a very fair contract and looking back on things, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. It was a great, unique experience, like I say. So that's uh, sort of who I am, if you will. And again, as I said a moment ago, I really enjoyed my time here at Sane Effects and just love everything I do, really.
0: What a tremendous uh, trajectory, uh, David. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, um, uh, so refreshing to see how um, inspiring um, our colleagues are here on campus and uh, uh, how many uh, interests and uh, also uh, positions and hats uh, you've uh, uh, assumed uh, during your uh, time, Yeah and your academic career. Uh, So you started in the shadow of René Levesque in a way, yeah? Yes,
1: (laughs) uh, that is true.
0: And uh, uh, you dabbled in uh, political science, but uh, it seems to me that uh, you retain an interest in uh, politics, in uh, how power, how uh, um, the government and uh, the education system uh, um, relate to each other, I, how would you how would you describe your current research interests uh, broadly speaking?
1: So what my current, So my current research is in a word like you said, very broad. I do tackle a lot of different things in the research I do. I would say I'm probably eclectic and I do a lot of different things. Mainly in the area, of course, of public education, but again, I cover a lot of different terrain there. So, as some examples, um, my first book that I wrote or co-edited, rather, back in 2000 and uh, I guess nine or ten, probably, that was a book about teaching online. And when we wrote that book back in 2009, 2010, we had no idea, of course, with COVID coming down the pipeline, how we'd actually transition towards online learning. So, I guess in a way. That book was quite fortuitous because, again, it covered things like what is good pedagogy in online teaching. So that was my first foray into the online teaching arena. Um, My second book was Education Law in Canada, and uh, that book was published by Irwin Law in Toronto, and I used that book for my own course in school law. It's become a very good seller, actually, and it gets a fairly wide readership because, again, it's practical, It's geared towards things teachers face in their practice every single day. So that was my second book, Education Law. And again, that's still my major area of focus in 2024. I love the law and the impact it has on public education. Again, that's still my go-to research area. Uh, My third book, again, co-edited, was a book on the teaching practicum. And again, for teachers, the, the courses they take in their BED program... I think they're all incredibly valuable courses, but you really learn teaching by doing it, where the rubber hits the road type thing. So that book in particular chronicled how to supervise students on teaching practicums from the perspective of cooperating teachers plus faculty advisors. So again, that was my third book. And of course, the fourth book is the book we're profiling today on policy, So that's been my major foci of research. Again, eclectic, like I would say, I cover a lot of terrain, but uh, most deals with certainly policy and more particularly education law.
0: Excellent. Let's turn to the book now. Um, This book uh, was co-edited with your colleagues, Robert White and Monica Williams, for a specific series of Emerald Publishing dedicated to transforming education through critical leadership, policy, and practice. Could you briefly tell us what made you put together this book on this particular topic?
1: Sure. So, as you mentioned, this book is part of a series as published by Emerald. And so myself and Robert and Monica... We all have a number of years working in the area of educational policy. We also have a passion for educational policy. For us, again, it's incredibly important to dive into policy at a very deep level. So I think we realized quite early on in trying to find a book for a policy course in education, it is not overly easy. There are a number of books on policy and they're all excellent books, by the way. But educational policy in particular is a very specific subset of policy in general. So in trying to find a book, I wouldn't say it was Mission Impossible, but it was certainly very difficult. Leslie Powell's books, again, are all excellent books on policy, but they don't deal specifically with education matters. So I think that was a major impetus for this book. We all realize, again, that is myself, Monica, and Robert. There's no good book out there right now in policy that covers all the angles, so therefore... Why don't we write a book on educational policy that covers all the angles? And it was somewhat fortuitous because at that time, same time we're talking about the idea, uh, Stephanie Chitpin at the University of Ottawa, she was editing the series from Emerald. And both Robert and I knew her through research endeavors. So we contacted Stephanie and said, we have an idea for a book on policy. We think it fits your series. Would you be interested? And she was incredibly receptive to it. Again, she was very accommodating. We put in a proposal. It was accepted in very short order. And after that, we went about writing the book. And the book was a labor of love, honestly. Because again, like as I mentioned earlier, we all have a deep passion for policy and all the policy does or in some cases does not do for teachers, students, and schools. So the book was a labor of love. It took about uh, about a year and a half from start to finish with the writing process. And of course, there was the editing as well. But in the end, I think we put together here a good product that really captures the intricacies of policy from start to finish. And the most advantageous part of the book is, I would say at least, it's user-friendly for practitioners. <laughs> when I teach courses on policy, students, master students often tell me, we find policy to be very mystifying and it's very intimidating and it shouldn't be that way policies are to help guide your practice ideally so this book again is written for a practitioner audience that is teachers principals working in schools policymakers as well so we really demystify what policy is all about and make it user friendly for the end product again the teacher working in a classroom every day
0: that's great the book is divided into 11 chapters. Could you please walk us through the um, argument and how the chapters are building on each other? So sure. That
1: so I, I listeners... will say, a preparatory comment, the book has 11 chapters and they can be read in tandem. That is, one builds upon the other they can also be read as standalone chapters. That is, every chapter tackles some part of policy that can be read in isolation from the other chapters. So that's another beauty probably of the book. So I'll say there's a preparatory comment. Uh, the chapters, again, are designed to be as sequential as they possibly can be in a book of this nature. I always tell the readers, the chapters are not, to use an nautical term, they're not water type compartments. That is, There's a lot of spillage back and forth between and among the chapters because, again, they cover a lot of linked terrain, if you will, or similar terrain. So that's important to keep in mind as well. The first chapter is all about what is policy, and uh, that may seem fairly straightforward. However, it is not so straightforward. There is a great quote I always use again, and the quote is, We all recognize an elephant trying to define what an elephant is, is not so easy. And the same, I think, applies here to policy. We all know the word policy. We use it every day in our vernacular. But defining policy is not that straightforward. For some, policy is a law. You must do this. For others, it's a guideline. You should do this. Both things apply to policy, yes. So we try to basically unpack in our first chapter, what is policy? For the practitioner, again, that teacher working in a school every single day, trying to grapple with what policy is or is not in their practice. Also in chapter one, each author, myself, Monica and Robert, we try to explore our foray into politics, our experience with it again, what we've done with policy, how we've come across policy, how we've navigated the policy terrain. And I share my own little story here again, And I go back to my student teaching days back many, many years ago now. And I basically tell the audience or the reader again, when I was first a student teacher, I really came across policy in a very big and tangible way. Because in schools, whether we like it or not, there are a myriad of policies. And they dictate things that we can do as teachers. And conversely, things we cannot do or should not do as teachers. So things like uh, late attendance again submission of grades. All these things are driven in some way, shape, or form by a policy or a directive. So again, in that first chapter, each of us in our own way tries to unpack our own dealings with the policy animal, if you will. So that again adds a bit of a narrative personal flair to chapter one of the book. And again, as students often tell me, policy can be dry for some, I don't think it is personal, I think it's very exciting. But we try to make the book, again, a little bit more lighthearted, if you will, in terms of what policy is all about. So that's chapter one. Again, it sets up the entire book, really, in that sense. Chapter two is entitled Policy, Power, and Politics and Education. And I think you really can't separate these things. Politics is uh, heavily imbued in the development of policy, not surprisingly. And here in Canada, it is a unique situation because in Canada, unlike the United States model, for example, we have little federal involvement in education here in Canada. And the reason is chiefly the British North America Act or the Constitution. Uh, Way back to 1867, section 93 of the BNA Act says education is a provincial or territorial responsibility. And I think back in 1867... The framers realized education was a local matter, and it would vary based on place or geography. So that's why, again, until 2024, we still have education being chiefly provincial or territorial. So the federal government, that is Ottawa, they are involved in matters. Yes, they provide transfer payments that helps pay for education. Uh, They're involved in uh, linguistic education, First Nation education, but public schooling, still is chiefly governed by the province or the territory. And that's unique from, again, that American model, like I say, where there's a stronger federal presence in matters of education. So we try to talk about these things. We also unpack in chapter two the fact, again, education is a hierarchy. And there are a number of laws or policies that impact, again, the entire political dimension. So I mentioned Ottawa or the federal government. They're not heavily involved, but federal laws have a direct bearing on matters of education. So, for example, I mentioned the British North America Act or the Constitution. It has a big impact. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms, it guarantees fundamental rights and freedoms for all Canadians. That has a big impact on students and teachers in schools, inevitably. So the Charter is federal. The Constitution is federal. They are at the top of the hierarchy as far as that goes. But we also have under that hierarchy provincial laws. And the big one is not surprisingly what's called the Education Act or the School Act, depending on geographic locale. And that governs education only in that province or territory. So for example, the Nova Scotia Education Act only applies within the confines of Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, like manner, Ontario, like manner. So again, that's another provincial law and has a bearing on how things work in the policy dimension. We also have school board policies. And again, they fall lower down in the hierarchy, but are also part of the whole chain of policy development. And last, we have school policies. And the interesting thing, Lavinia, is with school policies, what you'll find often is even in the school, same school board, different schools with different policies. So it does show, again, there's a myriad of things that play here as far as how policies work in the schools of 2024. So it's a very unique thing. And again, Canada being less federal involvement, again, it makes it also quite unique, I think. So that was our chapter two. And again, as I mentioned earlier, when you look at things like federal laws, provincial laws, school board policy, school policies, those are not watertight either. Those things spill back and forth, again, a lot of overlap there. So it's all part of the kind of the policy process if you will so that was the second chapter of the book third chapter is called policy alignment connecting school district and system policies and uh, ideally what we want is what's called policy alignment when there's a misalignment that's when things run amok i think very quickly in policy circles so We strive towards policy alignment, not always possible, I realize, but that is the ideal scenario. So when you think of policy alignment, some things we cover in chapter three are the following to keep in mind. So we talk about, for example, technical feasibility. Can we even make this policy work in schools? And we have these grandiose ideas sometimes, but again, pragmatically, we just can't do them. So are they technically feasible? The answer might be no. So that's a consideration in terms of aligning policy we also have economic feasibility do we have the money for these policies next to health care education is the most expensive endeavor governments undertake so there's a big ticket item as far as education is concerned so money is always a factor or a consideration so economics always comes into play inevitably we also have political viability will the government actually pursue this course of action Will result in more votes, less votes next election time or next election cycle again? And is there a political will to do it? Is it there or not? So again, these are all considerations in terms of alignment. And the last one is administrative operability. Can the schools actually make the policy work or actually implement the policy? And we oftentimes, I think, miss that part of the equation. We have this policy developed elsewhere, but again, we never consider how it's going to impact schools. And that's the bottom line, right? We're here to make schooling better for the students in our schools, and that administrative operability is an incredibly important consideration, but I think so oftentimes completely overlooked by the policymakers. So another point we have to keep in mind here. So that was our third chapter of the book. The uh, chapter four was contemporary models of policy development, and uh, there are certainly many models around how to develop policy. Some are very structured some are very i would say i wouldn't say haphazard but they're certainly unstructured if you will uh there's probably a place for both in terms of developing policy a few things we might we remind readers in chapter four is there's really what we see as three phases of policy development there's a the pre-policy phase before the policy comes into being there's the policy phase when we finally bring it into place and there's a the post-policy phase so These are all things, again, policy makers or people dealing with policy have to keep in mind acutely when they're trying to develop policy. Because, again, these models, again, it's like a continuum, structured, unstructured. But, again, they all deal with pre-policy, in the end policy, and post-policy. So, again, that was a Chapter 4. The Chapter 5 is, again, kind of building on that. It's called the Policy Continuum. And again, some points to keep in mind here from chapter five we try to raise for the reader is we see a lot of different kinds of policy models here. One is highly prescriptive. It dictates basically everything. It's the what and the how. We also have things like supportive. That's more focused on the why. Why are we doing this policy right now in 2023, 2024? And the last one is progressive. Again, it focuses on, more so on the why. Why? why do we need the policy right now? Is the existing policy actually broken? Or is there a need for a new policy or tinkering only? So these are all things we try to point out in chapter five along that continuum, if you will, of policy from pre-policy to policy to post-policy. Then we have chapter six, which is the role of educational leaders in the policy process. And these are the actors who work with policy in the educational realm, there are many actors. There are the policymakers in the Department of Education and they develop policies. There are also teachers working in schools who live with the policy every single day for better or for worse. We also have district level leaders, those are school board superintendents or directors of education, who again are a higher up in the hierarchy, if you will. But we also point out here in the actors are the students. Because they are inevitably impacted every single day by policies, be the policy good policy or bad policy. And we have examples abounding of good policies and some of not so good policy. So again, in the end, we have to always ask ourselves, how will this policy impact students? What's the bottom line? Because again, our clientele, if you will, the bottom line actor here is the student. We want what is best for the student in every single scenario. So... We often forget students in the equation. They're the most important actors. We point that out as well in our Chapter 6. Chapter 7 is policy implementation. I mentioned the uh, that one earlier. How do we actually implement policy? And I think in talking about policy implementation, there are some things the chapter does point out to keep in mind. So, for example... Policies are often made outside schools by policymakers, and in some cases, strangely enough, the policymakers have not really spent time in classrooms. They're kind of removed from that. So they're making policy from maybe a business model, let's say, or a purely political model, but they haven't spent time working in a classroom day to day. So they don't understand the dynamics, if you will, of a classroom, how it works, how it Unfolds in 2024. So, in the policy implementation phase, there's a lot of things like interpretation going on here. How do we interpret the policy, or how do we translate the policy into our everyday practice? We talk about those things in Chapter Seven. We also mentioning we have, we need coherent and aligned policy frameworks. If we don't have those, again, the entire system breaks down from the outset. So, coherence again, alignment. Those are key buzzwords, and they really do ring true in 2024 in policy circles. Chapter eight is bridging policy practice gaps and building policy capacity. And we've all heard the theory practice gap before, and it rings true in educational policy too. We're trying to get around these barriers to policy, if you will. And there are a number of barriers that impact this whole theory of policy, versus the implementation of policy so leaders nowadays in 2024 they have to exhibit you know certain traits to make policy work in their schools so for example i think policy makers nowadays or leaders as well adaptive problem solving they have to be good at solving problems otherwise again it runs amok very quickly i also think too again in making policy there needs to be a school level focus That is where, again, the rubber hits the road here for policy because, again, that's where students learn in the school. So, therefore, any policy in education has to be focused on the school level. That's where it kind of stops and finishes for me, if you will. Number three is a compatibility. Can the teacher take the policy and make it work in their classrooms? And, again, that's oftentimes easier said than done because, again, the policy is this massive beast. But, again... Making it work in individual classrooms is is no easy task sometimes. So again, that's another consideration, again, that compatibility aspect. As well, principal leadership. I mean, so important, again. They often say in educational research, the principal really drives the ship. Whatever their philosophy is, that will dictate what that school will be like. And having worked in schools myself, I can attest to that fact. And the principal, again, they really determine the course or direction of the school, either positively or negatively. So principal leadership, again, such an important element to keep in mind as well. There's also, I think, another overlooked fact, teacher involvement. As I mentioned earlier, policies on the ground level are implemented by teachers. But oftentimes, they are never part of policy considerations or policy deliberations. They're simply absent from it these are the ones, the people who live and work with the policy most, you know, acutely. So therefore, why not be involved in the policy formulation process? They have invaluable insights to give, but they're often overlooked by the policy makers. So I know it sounds almost counterintuitive, but that's the nature of the beast, if you will. So make teachers involved in the development of policy. That will only yield positive results in my mind. And as well, there's got to be to make policy work staff development you simply can't roll a policy out and say okay here it is do it in your classroom that's just doesn't work at all there's got to be preparation uh, professional development the economics behind supporting the policy all these things are vital i think oftentimes in education we roll policies out and again simply leave teachers their own devices to make it work or not make it work and it's simply not a good approach there's got to be some kind of pd to accompany the policy, and I also think, too, again, we got to keep in mind here time. We bring a policy in as a short shelf life, then we change policy again. It's never given time to unfold in a natural, harmonious fashion. So again, time is another great uh, lesson in all policymakers. I think need to keep in mind. Uh, chapter nine is around the uh, leadership of change and. Uh, If we've learned nothing from COVID and the pandemic, schools need to be flexible. They have to pivot, I think, very quickly nowadays. So that requires good leaders who can manage and successfully lead change. So that's part of the process now. Analogy we often use is in terms of change, there's got to be an unfreezing first of current ways of doing things. And schools, I will admit, get kind of trapped in the, uh, we've done it this way for a number of years. Let's keep doing it that way but there's got to be an unfreezing at some point then a refreezing towards a new kind of a policy. So again, good leaders can really, you know, manage change successfully. They know what to do, they're patient with their staff. They have the know-how and the wherewithal to kind of lead these things in a successful fashion. So we cover that again in our chapter 9 of the book. Chapter 10 is basically dealing with unintended and intended consequences of policy, and uh, when you design a policy, you try to basically envision all the possible scenarios will arise from that policy, and despite one's best efforts, there are always things we miss. There's always blind spots in developing policy, so the one we cite is not an education example, but uh, anti-lock brakes and cars. And anti lock brakes in cars were a wonderful invention. To prevent it prevented skidding. It uh, minimized accidents, I think, I believe at least. But there was, with the anti lock braking system, an unintended consequence. Because drivers felt probably more safe with the ABS systems again, they became potentially more complacent in their driving. And that could result in, again, other accidents happening. So, despite all our best intentions, all our best efforts again, there are things we may miss with the blind spots, like I say. It applies here in policy as well as education. So again, we cover that in chapter 10, our penultimate chapter. And then our last chapter of the book is chapter 11. That is the concluding chapter. And that chapter basically is a summation of the previous 10 chapters of the book and a bit of a uh, insight into where things are going in the policy arena here in Canada and beyond. So that is the book, and like I say, we do cover a lot of terrain. The chapters can be read as standalone chapters, but they do build upon one another in a, I think, fairly sequential system. So again, the book is all geared towards educational policy, and every chapter, again, for practitioners, there's something valuable there to take away. David,
0: that was a very uh, useful summary for our listeners you write that the book uh, explores how policy formulation may truly be transformative in combating hegemonic and neoliberal incursions into education. What are the lessons practitioners might draw from, from your book, the two, three major lessons that you think uh, they, uh, they would benefit from this book?
1: I think there's probably, in my mind at least, and my co-authors may beg to differ somewhat with me on this one, but in my mind, there's really two major lessons from this book. I think the first lesson is we often talk about a magic bullet that will solve every single thing. I think that's a trap we should not fall into. There is no magic bullet as far as policy is concerned. There is no one policy that will serve or solve every single dilemma we face in public education. So that, for me, again, is a really valuable lesson. The second valuable lesson I would say the book gives is, despite the fact we cover a lot of train the 11 chapters, I think a takeaway, maybe not mentioned specifically in the book, but nonetheless worth keeping in mind, is there is no real recipe for developing a policy. It's not a cookie-cutter approach. It's going to vary based on the situation based on the policy issue. So I'd like to say again, you know, do A, B, and C, and here's the end result. It's not that neat and tidy in policy circles. So there really is no recipe for developing, you know, a good or an adequate policy. It's all based on the case, the dynamics at play, the scenario at hand, and the actors involved. So again, that's another major takeaway. And I'd probably add a third one as well, one last one again. I went to a conference in uh, Calgary, it was the Congress back a number of years ago, 2000 and maybe 14 or 15. And I went to a a presentation by Beverly McLaughlin. She was a former Chief Justice Supreme Court of Canada. And I can remember there was some conversation around education law and whether it was a friend or a foe. And uh, it was an interesting question to pose because again, you know, you think law is really your friend or your enemy. And I think for a policy conversation here, again, my takeaway would be, again, educational policy is not the enemy. It is really a foe. It's there to be a friend to help you, you know, structure what you do, keep you out of trouble, hopefully, and keep you on the straight and narrow, if you will. So again, the last takeaway for me, again, from the book would be, again, always remember, again, education law is not an impediment. It's not the enemy, again, in the end product. Again, it really is a friend and not the foe. So um,
0: based on all this discussion, in which areas of education do you think new policies are most needed? Is there any area that needs urgent transformation or urgent solutions for improvement? What would you say?
1: That's an excellent question. And I think... uh, in the news quite a bit recently obviously right across the country i'll use the macro level term of sex education in canada i think there is a a very pressing need for policy evolution in that particular arena we've seen across this land again a lot of debates occurring around the whole sex ed agenda Uh, some arguing one point some arguing other points governments are taking a stand Uh, you know, across this land again. But I do think there is an incredibly pressing need here in 2024 and beyond for stronger policies or even let's say policies, if you will, to ensure the uh, gender identity of students is safeguarded in schools. It's a very hot button topic right now. It's kind of erupting right now in Alberta with recent policy evolutions. We'll see where it goes, certainly. But I think, again, of all the areas... I can think of right now in the current context that is the most pressing to me at least and the most demanding of attention from governments, policymakers and the public as well.
0: Well said. If you were to change anything uh, in this book, let me put it this way. If uh, you are uh, asked, uh, re edit uh, the book, uh, a second edition, uh, would you change anything? Would you add or would you would you take out uh, uh, a chapter or um, a topic?
1: (laughs) That's another excellent question. And of course, uh, the book is still in the infancy stage. It only came out in November of 2023. So it is relatively hot off the press. Uh, I think if I was to go back and do a second edition or a re-edit, I would probably try to incorporate more information around the sex ed debate right now in Canada that's occurring. I also think too, again, I will plan to use this book for my course in educational policy, and I oftentimes ask my students, okay, you've used the book now. What are your takeaways? I'm fairly thick-skinned, so good, bad, and the ugly. I want to hear it all. So students are very perceptive, I find. They give excellent feedback. So again, I would hope to use the book for the course, like I say, then take the student feedback, and whatever they tell me, to incorporate that, if you will, into a future edition if there's a demand for that. So early days right now, certainly, but that would be my takeaway as far as what lies next.
0: It uh, strikes me that um, your argument, your your, uh, examination of policy in education is actually relevant for other countries, for other educational systems, you know. And um, if you were to think about the... um, um, the relevance of uh, your book for um, for these other systems in other countries. Uh, would you say that um, some countries uh, would take take the lessons and take the um, investigations that you included uh, more easily? Uh, maybe the federal countries, or um, you see this relevance in other terms?
1: I mean, I think the book is certainly is geared towards a Canadian audience or a Canadian readership. There's no question there. Uh, We make no apologies for that because the book is geared towards this audience with this kind of system we have in place here right now with a federal government with little presence in education. But uh, could it be used elsewhere? I think the bottom line answer is absolutely. Things like policy coherence or policy alignment that knows no boundaries. That applies to whatever the country is. And I will also point out to Lavinia. In our chapters, we draw upon lessons learned from other countries, so places like Singapore, uh, South Korea, again, the U.S. model as well. So, again, we draw all these things in here where appropriate. So could it apply to other places? I think the bottom line answer is absolutely, because, again, the things we talk about in a lot of ways, they are universal. They're not only applying to Canada.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yes, indeed. Uh, now that you have this uh, book uh, under your belt in a way and uh, in the recent past, yeah, what is your current project on the table? Can you, can you disclose this to our listeners?
1: I can certainly disclose. Absolutely. No confidentiality here. Uh, so I have two major tasks underway right now. I mentioned my education law book at the outset. So right now I'm undertaking a second edition of the Education Law book. Uh, It's been a labor of love also. Uh, Slower than I would like, to be honest. But I'm hoping that by the fall, edition two will be out by Irwin Law. So that's a work in progress. I also hold right now with uh, two colleagues, one from the University of Ottawa, Stephanie Chitpin, and one for the University of Toronto, Marvin Zucker, a Shirt grant. And uh, we're working on uh, that shirt grant right now that deals with discipline in school. So primarily expulsions, suspensions, and how principals deal with those things in their school. So that's underway right now as well and uh, keeping me very busy and very engaged. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, I love all these things I do. I find it infectious, to be honest, and I can't get enough of it. So uh, even though it's work, It's work I really enjoy and really love. So bottom line, again, in that respect, it's really not work again. It's more fun for me.
0: This interview was very informative and also a delight. Our guest today at New Books Network was Dr. David Young, the editor of a new book on policy matters, perspectives, procedures, and processes published with Emerald Publishing in 2023. Thank you and hope we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye.